Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. It's your pal Paul here. I hope your life is full of love. I do. I hope your marriage, if you have one, is full of love and or if you have a relationship. And that's going to come up in this week's episode of Crazy Money. We're going to talk about marriages today. We're on a streak of marriage, broken marriages, high net worth divorce episodes over the next, oh, four or five weeks or like five of the next seven weeks. I don't know why. It just all of a sudden, all these things fell into place, and I've got the opportunity to talk to all these experts on this topic. And we're starting off with just a home run guest. My guest is Eli Finkel, and he's the author of a book called The All or Nothing Marriage. He's also a professor at Northwestern University by appointment to the Kellogg School of Management up there on the lake. Folks, if you find marriage to be hard, you are not alone. If you feel as if your spouse should fulfill every single physical, emotional, sexual, and financial need in your life, you probably should be alone. And that's the two-sentence summary I've come up with to describe this week's episode of my conversation with Eli Finkel, who is a very interesting dude, and his book is very thought-provoking. Stacy, my wife, and I listened to a couple hours worth of it on the way up to the mountains the other week. And it really got us talking about our marriage, which is not something we do every day. I think we all take our marriages for granted. I know all of our marriages are different. Our relationships are different. But I think when you've been together for a while, you sort of just think things just kind of work the way they work and you don't stop to talk about them. Listening to the book helps Stacy and I talk about some stuff we don't talk about. It wasn't like relevatory. We didn't break down and cry or anything, but we did have deeper conversations by a meaningful amount than the day-to-day in our life allows, or that we allow the day-to-day to allow, perhaps being more specific and taking more responsibility for that. Anyway, in this conversation, Eli, Dr. Eli and I discussed the evolution of marriage over the centuries, when and why love became part of the equation, how helping your spouse grow benefits you, the role of money in marriage. We really didn't talk about money that much, but I feel like you know, this is about more than money. This is about success in life. And part of success in life is success in a family, success in a marriage, if you're in one and understanding its role and how it helps you become the best person you can be. And that's really what this book is about, how marriage today has become a form of self-expression and how each person in a marriage can use the marriage to express themselves and help their partner express themselves. And that's a critical thing that comes back to the why helping your spouse grow benefits you. And then one of the most fun things we talk about is why consensual non-monogamy will almost certainly never, ever, 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 ever happen in the Ollinger household. And perhaps that attitude is reflective of my, I believe he said rigid, no narrow cultural interpretations, but hey, I'm nothing if not uptight, folks. We know that. A survey of Eli's peers identified him as the most influential relationship scientist in the 21st century. That's kind of a big deal. And The Economist declared him, quote, one of the leading lights in the realm of relationship psychology. On the other hand, his wife thinks it's hilarious that he's a marriage expert, just like my wife doesn't think I'm funny. And isn't that the perfect encapsulation of marriage right there? Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy this conversation, and I know you're gonna, and you might even want to buy his book, a link to which is in the show notes. Enjoy this conversation with the author of The All or Nothing Marriage, Eli Finkel. Uh, I have to say that I found very amusing the fact that your wife finds it hilarious that you are a marriage expert. Yeah, she definitely does. 
how does that play out in your <laughs> in your occasional disagreements when yeah. she's like i don't care if you are an expert in marriage yeah. or not Mo- you don't act like one no she's right yeah mostly in the form of assertive eye rolls <laughs> yeah it's like if you're married to an accountant you know you have an issue with the way that the banking or the checkbook is kept yeah you know we have the same sorts of cannery that uh, that everybody else has um sort of being aware of it in real time or in advance doesn't help a whole lot and yeah the idea that I'm some sort of expert on the topic. I mean, I think she's fond of me. I think she thinks I'm a pretty decent husband, but the idea that yeah. I'm, I'm some sort of paragon of this stuff is laughably absurd. How did you get interested in the topic of marriage? Did you, like in graduate school, just start zeroing in on that kind of thing? You know, in some ways it started way before that. I, I discovered somewhere along the way that it was possible to make a living asking questions about how romantic relationships work and and then coming up with ways of trying to answer those questions. And I had a a little bit of a weird background in that before I discovered that I was passionate about this stuff, I had discovered that I wanted to be an academic. And that just seemed like a Mm. good life, life of the mind and, you know, good job stability. And it just seemed to have a lot going for it. So my only job in college was to figure out what I liked. And I took an intro to psych class my freshman year and thought that seems pretty good. So I declared that major. And then my junior year, I took a social psych class and thought that seems pretty good. I should get a PhD in that, but I didn't know what. And so I went back through the textbook and there was one of the chapters that I, I remember liking the best was relationships. And mm. so I figured out this was really before people searched stuff on the web. This was 95, 96. And I went through the references section to see who made sense and yeah, applied to work with some of those people and yeah, been doing a lot of that stuff ever since. Did it help you dating in college, your insights into relationships? I doubt it helped me in teaching me you know, how to, you know, be savvy with the ladies or anything like that. Um, but I do think it's it's a reasonable conversation starter. And I suspect that a lot of us have the view that, you know, what we do professionally is really interesting to people. But I sort of think I'm right. You know, people discover that you do this and they want to talk about it and offer their perspective and hear what the data show. So in that sense, yeah. I think it probably helped my social life. Do you mind me asking what kind of a marriage did you witness in your childhood home? Well, you know, that's a great question because in some sense, there's three of them. So the one that I witnessed with my own parents cratered when I was very young. I think they formally split when I was three, divorced when I was five. I don't believe that I have a single childhood memory of it, but I, I do think that it was a pretty conflictual house. But that said, I've witnessed two enormously loving long-term marriages. So by the time I was, before I turned seven, both of them were happily remarried. And both of them are, I view myself as having four parents. I've had, so I'm 48 right now. And since I was about six, five or six, I've known both of my step-parents and they're enormously crucial people in my life and parental figures to me. And so I, I in one sense, from a very young age, witnessed a, a marriage that, that really was a bad match and cratered. And in another sense, have witnessed, you know, two very, very loving, very different long-term, I think, superb marriages. That's interesting. So your book is uh, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. It seems it's all about expectations and the expectations we put on ourselves, we put on our partners. How did that inform your expectations as you approached marriage as, in your own life? How did my childhood experiences? Yeah. Boy, uh, some serious psychotherapy happening here. <laughs> you want me to start? I'll start. As I was listening to this book, and I told you before we got started that I, I listened to a good bit of it with my wife on our drive up to the mountains last week. And we started talking about what our expectations are and why we 
act kind of the way we act. And, I, and one of the things that I witnessed growing up that I value is my parents had a very stable mm. and undramatic home life mm-hmm. that it was busy. I'm one of six kids. It was crazy. There was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of people, a lot of extended family that was there too. But my parents, it seems that stability and harmony was a big deal. And I think that's something I really want to replicate for my own kids. That doesn't mean I'm the best husband or father. It doesn't mean that I always achieved that goal, but it made me aware that like that was something I prioritized when deciding when I wanted to get engaged. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you were more attentive and learned better than I did. I got married at 38 also. Okay. Well, way. that gives some time to sort of figure it out. 38. And are you also going to have six kids? No, I very, very, not at all coincidentally have two children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, two as well. You know, my big moment of thinking about expectations, I actually talk about it in the book, although it doesn't come until fairly late, was the lowest moment in my own marriage. So the, you know, if if you're talking about this issue of of tempering expectations, and, you know, here I I would like to give a caveat that I hope we return to is this is not a book that tells everybody not to ask for too much. This, This is not your grandmother, like, why are you you know, why can't you just be happy? That's, that's really not the feel of the book, I hope. But you are absolutely right that it's a lot about calibrating or managing expectations. And part of that is figuring out what to let go of in terms of your aspirations, at least in the short run. So you may recall the, the story that I tell about when, you know, my wife and I hadn't been very um, all that long. We had an eight-month-old and I took a trip across the country to see my closest childhood friend, Adam, in Seattle. And, you know, this guy had been a a source of pleasure and joy since, you know, before we were one and throughout life, you know, we'd backpacking and, you know, general debauchery. We was traveling with an eight-month-old and it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun being on the plane and and the experiences that I always associated with the joy of my friendships, like those felt gone. And I hadn't really diagnosed yet that I was in a little bit of a a postpartum dip. I mean, not technically depression, but not all that far from it either. And I remembered thinking, like, I can't keep hoping to have life be like what it was before, you know, I had a kid because traveling with an eight-month-old is not the same thing as getting together with your old buddy and, like, going on a big adventure trip in the wilderness. And it took me longer, I think, than it took someone like you to figure out, not so much about the marriage per se, although that was all part of it, but that, you know, different stages of life, different circumstances require Uh, different sorts of expectations and assumptions and require some sort of calibration about what is it that we're going to look for? What is it that we're going to hope to achieve over the next period of time? And I actually think that lowest moment of, of maybe my adult life, but certainly the lowest moment of our marriage turned out to be in some ways the most useful and certainly Mm -hmm. was, was instrumental in informing the thinking that led to the book about, you know, expectations are wonderful and you should not always hold yourself to low expectations because high expectations push you toward excellence. And there's a lot of ways in which high expectations in in a marriage are necessary if we're going to achieve excellence. But being sensitive to when we have expectations that are unreasonable in light of the moment, in light of, you know, certain ways that we're not as compatible as we wish we were. Maybe there's a, a cancer diagnosis. Maybe there's three young kids at home. For whatever it is, being strategic about lowering expectations when needed. Your 
anecdote about traveling with an eight month old really resonated to me. We took our then nine month old to Spain very that was optimistically, <laughs> very optimistically yeah. early in his life. And then one time coming home from Michigan, from Michigan back to LA when we lived there, he just had a meltdown on a plane for 12 hours, the worst travel day ever. Oy. When I got back to the office the next day, my colleague Jen, who had kids that, who were a few years older, she said, you know, when you, when you travel with a, with a baby, your only goal is to arrive. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah. that puts it all in perspective. It helps. Because yeah. traveling up to this point is about me. She's like, "Don't you're not going to get any work done. Right. You're not going to listen to music. You're not going to watch a movie. You just want to arrive. And once you put it in that context, you go, okay, my mission is just to try to keep this baby safe and keep the other passengers as little annoyed right. as possible. Yeah. And then everything, once you embrace that, everything else is gravy, right? That's right. I mean, it was harder for me. Now, granted, I was battling a mild postpartum depression at the time, but I, I totally agree with everything that you said. That is, once you lower expectations enough for you know a given set of circumstances at a given period of time, that yeah, like you've sort of mitigated the amount of unpleasantness. That's absolutely true because our, our disappointment really derives from a discrepancy between what we expect or hope for and what we're getting. And so you can, you know, lower your expectations to be near the floor, and it's hard to underperform them. <laughs> the, the thing for me was that I think again, it sounds like you were just in a, in a healthier place when you were coming at these things than I was. Again, just for that limited period of, of time in my adult life, it's it's not like this is a general state of affairs for me. But in that stage. It was a, a dark time for me, and I couldn't shake, like, why bother trying? So I, I think mm. you were pretty good about being mm. like, well, yeah, like, you just keep the kid sort of quiet and, and try not to, you know, to try to mitigate the <laughs> amount of homicidal <laughs> fantasy that everyone around you on the plane has and, and like, right. all that stuff. And, and I thought, I'm not going to leave my house. I mean, I wasn't literally what I thought, but I thought, why should I even bother trying to enjoy stuff? And actually, as disappointing as that is, and sort of a bummer, and as much as I would say that was kind of an extreme reaction, I think there's deep truth in it too. And this is a little bit of what's in the book about marriage is I wouldn't recommend that somebody enter a marriage saying like, I'm going to stop trying to make this great, right? I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to stop trying to connect in the same way, stop trying to have a real meaningful type of sexual connection with my spouse. Like, who would do that? And yet, I suspect that for many of us, and I'm talking about people with good marriages, there will be moments along, those, along the way, in those five or six decades, that, you know, for some number of months, a couple of times throughout the course of the marriage, you will be better off. Again, not for everybody, but for a lot of us, you will be better off having stepped off the gas entirely, having said, mm -hmm. we are going to endure. And we probably aren't going to go to Spain because that's going to suck. And we liked going to Spain. We liked going to Spain together in the past, and we will like it again in the future, but it's just causing us more misery than pleasure right now, and we're just going to batten down the hatches for the period of time. And then slowly, when the period of time that, that's really difficult ends, you sort of like put a toe out and then you put a foot out and then you're like, whoa, Spain is fun again, but it yeah. takes a little while to get there. All right. We'll come back to some of these more kind of on the ground tactical experiences of marriage, but let's talk about some context here. First of all, why is marriage good for people and for society? Oh boy. So why is marriage good for society? Look, there are various ways, I, I think, in principle that societies can function 
romantic love does seem to be a cross-cultural universal, but there's a lot of variation in the extent to which people link it to marriage. I mean, you know, there've been periods of time in certain cultures where like, of course you, you know, wanted to have passionate sex and so forth, but not with your wife, you sicko. Um, right. Like that was a, that was like a, you know, a, a political or yeah, like an old fashioned sort of political arrangement. And then, yeah, like, you know, you might have this thing on the side, but you know, th that's not what a marriage is about. And by the way, I'm like sensitive to those sorts of arguments. I don't think they're as crazy as most of the, most of us think that it is because look, marriage is a lot of things like, and it's not like Moses came down from Mount Sinai with a rule that marriage has to be all of these different psychological things to you that, you know, for most of us or many of us, it's your best friend, your soul, sexual and romantic companion until death do you part. Somebody who support you spiritually and support your career and be there to support you when you feel ashamed and then you're supposed to be able to support them. And meanwhile, even while both of you are totally open about your level of shame, the, somehow you're supposed to feel like an intense amount of sexual desire for this person who's like crying on the floor in shame. So there's a lot that we're asking, and, and I, think, I think it's reasonable to think about ways that we might try to, again, calibrate that stuff. But in general, you, know, you need some sort of social organization. I do not think that the nuclear family, as we have it in the West today, is the only way to do it. I think it's a pretty good way to do it in light of the ideology, in light of the sort of moral worldview we have that has a heavy emphasis on self-expression and personal growth. And here I want to make it clear that I'm not talking selfishness. I'm not you know, scolding us for saying like we want a self-expressive life. There are profoundly meaningful, other-oriented ways of living a self-expressive life, but I think most of us want authenticity. We want to figure out who it is that we are and live a life in accord with that. And the nuclear family as we've built it and marriage as we've built it is pretty effective for that particular worldview, which my guess is you and I both, along with most of your listeners, adhere to. So from the societal perspective, just to put closure on that, it is a very reasonable system for the particular ideals that we hold. A topic we might get to later, depending on your interest, is does that require monogamy? But we can come back to that one. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Maybe we'll get to that. I also want to put out the caveat that you start the book by saying that in no ways are you endorsing only one way to live yeah. from a moralistic, Christian-centric, heteronormative no. point of view as being the only way to live. That's clearly... There's more than one way to, you know, come at life. But marriage, and for those people who choose to engage with it, has changed over time, right? Yeah. And you point out how historically there's been an evolution, and we've gotten to this self-expressive phase of marriage. So will you just walk us through briefly yeah. kind of how marriage has changed over the centuries? Yeah, I mean, this one was one of the really fun things about writing the book, because mostly I'm a psychology researcher. I bring couples into the laboratory and videotape them and code their behavior, and this was me taking like a 400-year historical tour through U.S. history, for example. The historians and sociologists tell us that there's basically been three primary eras of marriage. And the first one is, I think, really hard for us to channel. So I think it's useful to think about Abraham Lincoln. So when he was born in 1809, so call it a couple hundred years ago, he had an older sibling, a, you know, a three-year-old, and then he was there. And, the, and he and his parents lived in a single-room dirt floor log cabin. Another kid came, but then died in infancy when Abraham was nine. His mother died, and when he was still a teenager, his only remaining sibling died, giving birth to a stillborn kid. And I mentioned it mm -hmm. not only because Abraham Lincoln's a badass and he overcame a lot, but, but really more to the point that life was fragile like that. It's not like they were some extreme outlier. That is, And so what I guess I would ask all of us, like, what would you look for in a, in a spouse? Literally, what people looked for was like literally things like food, clothing, shelter. And so this first era of marriage up until around 1850 or so 
you know, you can call it the pragmatic era. Uh, of course, you'd rather love your spouse. And if the sex is good, that's like a total perk and you're psyched about it. But people weren't standing at the altar saying things like, you know, I want to marry marry you because you're my best friend or you complete me. That would have gotten you laughed out of your, you know, colonial hamlet. But then starting around 1850 and then and then really gathering steam up until the 19... So starting around 1850 and gathering steam up until around the 1960s is what we can call the love-based era, where increasingly throughout that century plus, people thought that marriage was you know, a social institution that was to a significant extent about the personal fulfillment of the spouses. That wasn't really the point of marriage before that. It had a lot of functions, including a sacrament before God, for example. But now it's like, I want to be personally fulfilled. And there's a lot of sociocultural reasons for that, including the advent of the industrial economy, which brought young people to cities where they were geographically and economically independent of their families for the first time ever and had the freedom to make their own marriage decisions. And so people want to marry for love. And that remains the dominant idea. And it actually reached its pinnacle in the 1950s. And this is what you think of when you think of you know, traditional marriage or, or leave it to beaver or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the breadwinner homemaker ideal. That is, he goes off and does his work and earns the bread and she takes care of the home and raises the kids. And and I just want to emphasize for people who now think that's archaic and ridiculous that this had been a fantasy for large swaths of humanity for a long period of time. And the only reason why the 1950s is really when you finally got to live it is because America basically was the Colossus, right? This is post-World War II. And now for the first time ever, a, a high school boy can finish his degree and, and get a union card and kind of support a family of five in the suburbs. And they did it. And everybody thought this was going to be a good solution. And it just wasn't. That is, both men and women chafed against the strictures of that, you know, you have your sphere, I have my sphere. And so in the 1960s, you witnessed that shatter in a pretty significant way. Uh, and a lot of conservatives at the time blamed the feminist movement for that. And I, I think that's correct. The, the, the feminist movement, I think, was correct in sort of shattering the 1950s vision of marriage. And I'm glad they did, honestly. But it yielded basically a generation of chaos, including my divorced parents. And so, for example, the divorce rate basically doubled between 1965 and 1980. But many of your listeners might not know that it's kind of come down a little bit since then. And especially among the college educated, it's come down a lot since then. Seems to me like in that era, which would be my childhood. I remember parents getting divorced for any number of reasons. Uh, There was a girlfriend that came into the picture. There was uh, somebody came out as homosexual, men and women. And so it seems to me like what that was, was the reversal of people who got married out of obligation at a very young age. And so they got to a point where like, wait a minute, I don't have to stay in this. This isn't who I am. Is that accurate to some extent? Yes, I think that's a huge amount what it is. I mean, it's bizarre to me. Like, I almost can't wrap my head around the fact that in 1960 in the U.S., the median age of first marriage for a man was 22 and for a woman was 20. And again, you told me you got married at 38. Yep. Like I was well into my 30s. I don't even remember, 33 or five or something. When I think of myself at 20, I think, holy cow. Like that is, <laughs> like, what was I ready to be doing at, at 20 or 22? There's that. But there also really was a new ideology that emerged. So some of it was technological. So the birth control pill was 1961. Sure. Uh, Betty Friedan's feminine mystique was 63. The massive civil rights legislation, 64, 65. Vietnam is gearing up around that time. And there really is a massive countercultural revolution predicated, although not everybody knew it, in humanistic psychology. This idea that we should live authentic lives. 
and that anything that impinges on living an authentic life is a form of oppression. And again, this is language that strikes many people as ridiculous, but is, I believe most of us adhere to this worldview to some degree, whether we like the language or not. And so at a time in the 1950s when there was a, a lot of emphasis on, on conformity, remember, this is a generation who they or their parents had had basically 16 years of chaos. Like 1929 was the start of the Great Depression, and that went right into World War II. And then it was 1945 by the time that ended. And then in 46, you get this huge surge of divorces. And then in 47, everybody settles down. And for 15 years, people call it the long decade of the 1950s from 47 to call it 62 or so. It's just very, very traditional and everybody's nesting. And I think people, for good reason, are sort of excited about doing it. And then a generation comes up around then that thinks, this is terrible and totally impinges on my ability to live an authentic life. And I think they have very good complaints, and they basically shatter that institution of marriage, bringing on from 1965 to the present this self-expressive era where I think we still are. So let's talk about that. When you say self-expressive, so I'm getting married as an expression of my authentic self. What does that mean? That I should seek out somebody who helps me live in a way that's true to who I really am. Now, mm. you're going to notice what I also critique a lot of these ideas for, which is they're a little nebulous, right? Like if you want to push too deep into these things, they get a little clunky. And, you know, Maslow, Abraham Maslow is sort of the, the most famous, probably he and, and Carl Rogers are probably the most famous pioneers in humanistic psychology, ideas that date back to the 30s and 40s, but really take off in the mid-60s and are instrumental in creating this self-expressive moment, Maslow uses language like the painter must paint, the poet must write. And Rogers, who created this sort of third branch of humanistic, of basically psychotherapy, I'm happy to talk about the broader context there, but his novel idea in psychotherapy is that basically people are good. I mean, this is different from Freud, and it's different from the behaviorists. And he says that basically let people be who they are. Right? Don't put constraints on them, don't put judgment on them, and they will grow into good people. That is, that is well-adjusted people, but also generous people. And, and that was really the ideology, the psychology, the mentality behind this self-expression, is that all of us have, maybe it's not perfectly precisely articulated, but that we have deep within us some sort of psychological essence. Whether true or not, this became the, a big part of the ideal, and I think currently most of us still subscribe to this, and so an authentic marriage is one that does two things. It, it helps you really bore down to discover, like, who are you at your root? Who are you at your, let's call it also your best? And second, how can we build a life together that affords the expression of that version of you rather than a lesser or less authentic version of you? Right. Does that put a lot of pressure on the marriage then, if that's how you go into it, thinking this other person, that's kind of like saying this other person completes me. By the way, I've got this whole theory on you know why there's no Jerry Maguire too, right? Because <laughs> that marriage didn't work out because the expectations were all out of whack, right? She can't complete him. He's got to complete himself and find somebody that accepts him for who he is, right? Yeah, I have a different hypothesis for why there's been no Jerry Maguire too, and it is in light of Me Too, that film dates very badly. Oh, um, he's basically hitting one. on his employee and stuff like that. <laughs> we can debate like why you know why there's been no Jerry Maguire too, but you know it's interesting. Is it you complete me? I think that wouldn't be the metaphor or the characterization that I would put on it. It would be something closer to: Are we psychotherapists for each other? Mm. 
And I think the answer is... That's hot, by the way. Nothing sexier, baby. Yeah, it's like each time you say something insightful, you have to lose a layer or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's ways to make this work. Oh, you're making me feel seen, quite literally. Yeah, making me feel seen. I mean, look, I agree with you. And actually, I think the person who's dealt with this most effectively is Esther Perel. I don't know if you've had her on your I have not, podcast no. yet. She's wonderful. She's got a book, a couple books, but one of them is called Mating in Captivity. Maybe you're familiar with it, but she raises this tension that I think you've also raised, which is, and I touch on in the book too, which is, is it really sensible for us to build a, a sort of social and romantic um, set of expectations where the person that you go to when you are your most vulnerable, when you feel ashamed, that you feel like you've really failed, is also the person that you go to for your more sexual needs. Especially given that, look, most of us have some level of kink, right? And so it's a little <laughs> weird to be like, okay, you know, let's make sure that we get the kids organized like you basically like feed the bottle and we'll put the younger one down and then and then we'll like set the four-year-old up with a half an hour television show and then i'll have you spank me for like 20 minutes and then we'll like go put that one to bed like it's kind of bonkers the range of different roles that we put on this one relationship sure i'm not suggesting against it like i think a lot of us are actually able to swing it but in some sense it's borderline miraculous that we're able to put all those different roles all those different expectations in there with regard to the therapy, you raise a good point. It's usually not sexy to be really vulnerable, right? A lot of us are turned on by partners who are confident and confident in their body, confident in who they are as people. And is it how easily are we going to navigate this tension of, I would like my partner to find me hot and sexy and confident in bed and also turn to her whenever I've done something shaming at work and feel like I'm unloved. Mm. It, it's a complex thing to balance. I have this theory I'm trying to work into a bit. I'm not sure if you if I mentioned this or not, but I do stand-up comedy. But the theory I'm working on is the reason it's so easy to resent your spouse is because we spend like our entire teen and early adulthood rationalizing our imperfections. Mm which is a necessary thing to do if we want to be able to look in the mirror without throwing up. And then you invite this other person or you mutually agree with this other person to live together and you have nothing but a 24-7 Technicolor mirror to expose your faults for what they are. Because marriage is about expectations. You have to have reasonable expectations, okay. y'all. And that's why I love going to weddings and hearing them say, the bride and groom have written their own vows. I just lean in and I'm like, I can't wait to hear this shit. Because <laughs> based on the vows, you know exactly how reasonable their expectations are. And if, the, and if the vows are like, and then the sun and the moon and the stars came together and our love was meant to be, short that stock it is a fair market, okay? <laughs> that couple is not going to hit their numbers next quarter, all right? They're going to have SEC issues. They're going to have... There's keywords you have to listen for in vows. Keywords. Number one keyword, destiny. If you hear destiny in the vows, take the under. Okay? Because that team is not making the playoffs. That's for sure. And if the bride's name is destiny, she's going to fuck a groomsman. All right? That's, that's the truth. That is a fact. Destiny is a stripper's name. And if your name is destiny or your daughter's name is destiny, that's on you. Right? That's on you. Nobody made you name your kid that. I, think you the strip club where you work. I don't know. Oh my God. 
you know, that Justin Timberlake song, You're My Mirror or whatever, it sounds all romantic. It's horrifying to me, <laughs> right? And it comes back to this quote that I've heard and that, I mean, it blows me away. It's from writer Tim Kreider. You've probably heard it. If we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. Whoa. I don't know it, but I do love it. And mortifying ordeal is about right. I mean, that's I mean, scary as shit, isn't it? Yeah, to be like, yeah. like this is who I am. You know who I am. Maybe we talk about it. Maybe we don't. I know who you are. I know your weaknesses. I promise not to exploit them. Please don't put me in a position to where I have to do that. Right. Also, can we have sex today? <laughs> right. Right. Not only can we, but like, I want you to crave me. Yeah, it's 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 a lot. I might call it a theory. You you apparently, as a comedian, call it a bit. A setup. Yeah, that's a, pre- a premise. I, I prefer... I prefer my more grandiose language. You can call it a bit if you Sounds want, but good. I think it's your theory. Well, we're gonna, we'll, we'll co-author a paper. Yeah, yeah. My bit. <laughs> my, my bit, a pathetic story of my sex life. There you go. I find that intriguing. I hadn't thought about that. But you're right that one of the things that we do as we grow into adulthood is we, we scaffold – again, I'm talking about those of us who are healthiest. We scaffold a, a positively tilted – self-image. That, that is, we're aware that we have limitations, of course, but but we've come to terms with them in ways that are a little bit more generous. I mean, the people who do less of this are more likely to be depressed. So we could call this part of a healthy, quote-unquote healthy, if, if mildly dishonest, self-image. And you're right. That, that, <laughs> yeah. But you're, you're right that I've had, you know, five or 10 years or 15, in your case, maybe, I don't know, 30 years to like build up this scaffolding, this armor, this this you know, the mirror has rose-tinted glasses. hundred percent. And, and you're telling, and then someone new comes who hasn't had these heroic 15 years to, like, tell themselves a story about how my weaknesses are actually, like, kind of reasonable and maybe even strengths. And you're right. They hold up a little bit of a mirror from somebody who hasn't had that opportunity. That That is totally intriguing. Talk a little bit about the tension between meaning and happiness in marriage. This is something that I, I, it's funny, when I initially submitted the proposal for the book, I had the general outline there. This is a chapter in the book that I hadn't intended to write and then realized somewhere along the way I needed to write it. And so the major criticism that I think you get for the whole idea of, of self-expression as a justification for marriage, and recall that, that my book's not a, not a moralizing book. It, it's a book that's trying to hold a lens up to what I think has happened with American culture and what I think is good about it and what I think is less good about it. But there's been this pervasive critique. And it turns out this critique goes back like over a century. Uh, you know, anytime people wanted to marry for personal fulfillment, as soon as that idea started to gain some currency, you saw some backlash. And, and I think you can generally think of this as conservative backlash, but not unreasonable backlash, sorry. And also not unreasonable backlash. I'm, I'm assuming that some of your listeners are lefties. I don't know if that's true. The spectrum is represented, I think. You that's pretty good because in academia, sometimes it's hard to represent the spectrum. So I'm glad we have it here. So yes, it is a conservative viewpoint and also I think quite a reasonable viewpoint, which is, well, if a marriage is about your personal fulfillment, right? Like you, I don't know, Dave is going to get married. And like, if he's happy, then he'll stay. And if he's not, then he won't stay. You've pretty much set up the institution that is marriage in general, the relationship, but also the institution more generally to fail. Because no marriage is like, I mean, almost no marriage is like deeply happy for 50, 60 years. These things have ebbs and flows. There's always someone cute. <laughs> you know that that will that will entice you somewhere along the way and so 
And so people have long since argued that at a theoretical level, if marriage is about my personal happiness, then how can this institution possibly last? And many people argue that if if marriage sort of as, as an institution dies, that will have bad consequences. And, and count me in that group, that it's not like I can't imagine an alternative, but I think a lot of what we get from marriage is, is quite good. And so I realized that there's two different ways of thinking about sort of personal fulfillment in the marriage. One is something close to pleasure and joy, right? Something close to like, it's not arduous and it is a source of pleasure and fun. And, you know, the sex is hot, right? Like that's what it would be. And all of those, by the way, totally advocate for those things. Those things are terrific. If that is really what the marriage is about for you, for any given person, then I think the conservative critique is correct. I think that person has a low probability of death doing them part. And then there's an interesting question of, should they make such a promise in the first place? There's another version of a self-expressive marriage that isn't so much about, is this thing going to be you know, pleasurable joy and sexual hotness, but is this going to be meaningful and purposeful? Right. Is it going to be a not only a nexus, not only a venue where I get to be a version of myself that I find meaningful and that's sort of a version of me that I want to be, but also that might be a, a springboard to me living the sort of life, having the sort of career, having the sort of engagement beyond my career that is the person I would like to be. And for me, the distinction here is between something like self-esteem or feeling good, feeling happy versus self-expression and personal growth. One of which, the second of which should be hard and arduous, right? Like Maslow, who talked about self-expression, he talked about self-actualization, but same same idea. He didn't think this was a cinch. He didn't think like, you and I are going to talk for a bit and then, you know, put it on hold for 30 seconds so we can get the self-actualizing done and then, you know, come and finish our conversation. <laughs> right, right. You know, he really thought that this was a, a lifelong arduous process that a few of us, if we're lucky, have like moments that we really live in accord with our best and most authentic self. And right. and that is what I think we've increasingly done with marriage over the last 40, 50 years in the US. And I think it's a good thing that a new vision has come since the 50s marriage shattered. It took a generation, but that we've basically built a new vision for how to build a, a self-oriented marriage where the marriage and the self aren't in conflict, right? Because if it's about like my pleasure and joy, but the marriage almost certainly will be arduous at times, then there's an inherent tension. But if it's about self-expression and living a meaningful life, then there's no inherent tension between me working hard on the marriage and me building a self-expressive life. In fact, there's a good case to be made that that is a crucial means through which we achieve a good self-expressive life, is committing to this thing and maybe making children together and committing to their well-being, and we are going to work come hell or high water to make that work. Why? Because it is of primary and essential importance to who it is that we aspire to be. And again, that's the reason why that ended up being a chapter in the book is it's that sort of subtle tension, two ways of marrying, quote, for the self. The first of which I think we saw in the 70s, and it, it almost broke marriage in a, in a big way. And the second we've seen emerging since then, this more self-expressive version that I think is healthy and, and really has synergies with marital commitment as opposed to conflicts with marital commitment. So is it true you inscribed your Valentine's Day card to your wife with the following you optimize my eudaimonic well-being. <laughs> um, boy, did I report that? I will say, um, and I say this with no pride because it's obviously a source of ridiculousness. Um, this is why you should never date an academic. 
But there was a girl that I dated, terrific woman I dated during my um, postdoc uh, in my mid-20s, uh, late, mid to late 20s. And I remember saying to her something like, you invalidate my ideal self. And, <laughs> and, That's so hot. And the reason, that is just it, super sexy. She did not find it sexy. But you know, the truth is this one, I also didn't mean to be sexy. It's and, like the and, highest and the, compliment though. I mean, in the movie with Jack Nicholson and Heather. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you make me want to be a better you man. You make me want to be a better man. That's exactly what you just said. You're not a screenwriter. I was, so. I was the, I was sort of the opposite though. I mean, I said you invalidate it. So, so, oh, so you inv- I'm sorry. I thought you said you validate it. Right. No, you validate my ideal self would have been better by yes. a lot. I can tell you what happened. I mean, the thing that was interesting about that, that I think most of us don't think that much about, is she was saying that she really likes it when I'm sort of like cute and playful, right? That, mm. that this is like, and what I realized is that there's a version of me that is like less serious. I realized like she's complimenting me. She's basically complimenting me. She's saying something that she really likes about me. But this is a problem because the version of me that she likes the best isn't the version of me that I like the best. And when I said you invalidate my ideal self, I wasn't saying like you're a bad person or you said something mean because she didn't. She gave me a compliment. But what I realized is this probably isn't going to work Yeah. because the version of me that you want, the place where you want me to go and the place where I want to go are not the same, even though I like the sort of cute, playful part of me too. It's just, to me, it's an auxiliary thing that I sort of like to bust out every once in a while. And for her, it was like, why aren't you that guy more often? And it's like, you know what? Because I don't want to be. So along those lines, let's talk about enlightened self-interest in marriage. How does me encouraging my wife to grow or being supportive of the ways in which she wants to grow benefit me and the marriage? Well, in one sense, I feel like it's the contract. Right. This isn't really an answer to your question, but I do feel like there are clear symmetries here. So, you know, going back to the sort of more traditional ways of thinking where like she's supposed to be supporting him uh, and not vice versa. I don't hold by that whatsoever. That is, if if this is a deal, it doesn't have to be the identical deal because we might have different interests and different priorities. But but the idea is that I'm as responsible to you as you are responsible to me. So there is some sense in which if I'm failing you, I'm not holding up my end of the deal. And I don't know if you'd say that's a violation of enlightened self-interest, but at the very least, it kind of makes you a dick. Um, so, so That's far more succinct. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, uh, d- that's the technical academic term. So we actually talk about like the dark triad, but frankly, dick is better. Yeah. So I think you're obligated. That's one thing. Another thing is, who doesn't want a partner who feels this sense feels this sense of like, I'm kind of living authentically. Like I feel like I'm growing into the version of me that I really like. And if we're talking again about the, the sort of, there's this tension between like being a primary source of support and, and sexual desire, which again, I think Esther Perel is the one who has really talked most eloquently about that issue. Like you want your partner to be proud. You want your partner to be confident and to be growing and to feel like this is a life that I, whatever my name is, right, that I feel proud to be living. This is it. This isn't necessarily the life for everybody, but it's good for me. And I'm proud of what I'm doing. And if I could make my partner feel 5, 10, 15% more strongly that way, I would feel deeply delighted, partly because, as I said, it's part of the contract, partly because I think she's just more desirable. Uh, I think most of us would find a partner like that more desirable, but partly because I authentically will love it. I will love watching her 
flourish like that. So I think there's a lot of generosity, but also enlightened self-interest and really not much conflict between the two in, in helping your partner find and grow toward this like best version of herself or himself or themselves. Speaking of self-interest, you know, you could say that somebody who is selfish might cheat in a marriage because he or she is indulging personal desires. Yeah. And yet I think the reason I don't not cheat, I don't not cheat. I hope I'm saying that right. (laughs) I choose not to have extramarital affairs, not because I'm worried about God striking me down or so much that I'm worried about being caught. I'm doing it because I believe it is in my self-interest to create a strong and trustworthy marriage that I want to see flourish, to create that home for my kids that I talked about at the beginning of the uh, of the conversation. Yeah. Other people choose to structure their relationships when it comes to monogamy in different ways. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. I love the way you characterize that, which I think is like very compelling for you, but I don't think necessarily has to apply to everybody. So I, th- I think the logic that you had, you should correct me if I've, if I've misheard this at all. I think the logic that you had was something to the effect of, it is a huge priority to me, as it, you know, to, to you, Paul, it's a huge priority that you sustain a deep connection to your spouse because that is a big priority in your life and also a big priority to you as a father. And I completely agree that if your view about what any type of, you know, romantic or sexual contact outside the relationship would mean for the marriage would be some sort of diminishment of those things, then I I find your argument very persuasive. You must be aware that there are many people who feel differently, right? There are many people who feel like there is no inherent tension between a person Having, uh, by the way, you use the word cheating, which implies that you're doing it dishonestly. So I, I completely agree with you about cheating or infidelity, right? That's and how it would be regarded in this home by both me and my spouse. I'm, right. Because I, I think the, I can speak for her when I say that anyway. Yeah, because that's the agreement you two have, right? But Correct. You could, Correct. I mean, could, could you fathom, I mean, maybe not for the two of you, but you could fathom people every bit as committed to their marriage as you are having a different set of assumptions about that. Or is that hard for you to grasp? It's, it's very difficult for me to get my head around. And, and why is that? And I say that with the with the understanding that I am wired in a way that I don't think I could pull it off. In both jealousy for whoever my wife would be uh, sleeping with, and also my probable inability to not get emotionally involved with an outside partner. Yeah. So I can't get my head around that. The way that a lot of people who are... So I'm actually... It's interesting because I'm happy to channel a perspective that I do find interesting and, and persuasive, but I'm certainly not an activist. I, I certainly mm-hmm. don't have the idea that most people should be consensually non-monogamous or, you know, this is the the right or better way to do it. The logic that people who do are activists in support of that idea, I don't find them them crazy at all, right? So one of them is sort of related to an idea that I brought up earlier, which is, boy, like lots of expectation for this one person. True. And it's not at all difficult for me to fathom a circumstance under which the person who is like the best co-parent with you might not be somebody who's especially sexually compatible with you. And and I think a lot of what I would say are generally good marriages, you know, shatter on the rocks of infidelity or sexual dissatisfaction. And and I, I don't know what to say about that. That strikes me as a bad call. That is insofar as there are relationships, and there surely are where we connect very well, we love each other, we respect each other, we're very good co-parents to our children, 
but we're just not into the same stuff, or one of us has just shut down sexually and it's been three years, whatever it is, one of it, we're very dissatisfied. And so we're going to have to split, right? The current, mm-hmm. the current prevailing norm and the one that I'm not saying you're advocating for, but the one you find most intuitive for yourself. And I think you think in general will have at least those relationships will, will break up. And I think that's a bad call. Well, call me when I've gone three years without having sex. And, you know, my my enlightened self-interest might have a different angle at that point. So let me say two other things about this. One is still at this level of sort of theory or principle, you might call it bit. But the second is at the level of data, right? Because ultimately, I think you and I are both very receptive to being persuaded by data. Before we get to data, there's a view that a lot of people have, and you may well hold it, that a relationship that's good is monogamous. If the relationship isn't good enough, then maybe some amount of non-monogamy is the way to go if you'd like not to divorce, right? Like, I think that's, it's like this really plan B if things are failing. Mm -hmm. Not everybody feels that way, right? And again, some people successfully lead another thing, which is our relationship will be stronger insofar as there is some amount of non-monogamy, right? That Mm -hmm. that is that the relationship will literally be stronger as a result of that. Now, not for everybody, for sure. And in fact, I'm happy to guess, not for the majority of people, but for a substantial minority of the people, I suspect that their primary relationship, if they have one, will be better if there is not a very, very strict rule about um, you know, romantic and sexual monogamy. But let's look at the data. So the best evidence that I know of comes from a study, it's now a few years old, a 2017 study. And what they did is these are large samples of people. So, so they got 600 plus consensually non-monogamous people. That is people who, consensual non-monogamy, it's probably an obvious term, but we're used to words like infidelity and cheating because we like to moralize about this stuff. Consensual non-monogamy is people having a, a principal romantic partner and deciding together we will not be infinitely exclusive in romantic and sexual, uh, romantic and or sexual ways. That's consensual non-monogamy. And so they recruited over 600 of those people, which is not an easy sample to get. I was very impressed with the size of the sample. I would imagine not. Right. Yeah. And so then they asked them things like, how satisfied are you in the relationship? You know, how trusting is the relationship, right? So how much jealousy is in the relationship? Now, what's really cool about this sample is they wanted to compare to sort of traditional heterosexual marriage sort of relationships. And so every one of these 600 plus people is identifies as cisgendered, so either as a man or as a woman. Right and who has a primary partner, and that primary partner is of the other sex. So if you're a man, it's a woman. If you're a woman, it's a man. And then there's some amount of non-monogamy in there too. And they compare the level of you know relationship well-being in those relationships to a sample of about 1,500 people, all sort of the same structure. So a man with a woman, a woman with a man, but they have a monogamy norm, right? So the question is, and, and again, unless we want to declare in advance that there's a clear moral rule here, and I'd be interested to see if you would like to make such a claim, my guess is you wouldn't. Unless we're going to declare that just based on you know some Kant imperative, Kantian imperative, we must never have non-monogamy, it's really an empirical question of what tends to work. Right. And so if you look at things like satisfaction and commitment and passion, there is no difference. And these are mm-hmm. large enough samples that if there was a meaningful difference, the study would have found it. But you might be thinking, yeah, that's because the effects are on things like trust and jealousy. You're not wrong. There are statistical differences. There are small, they're small, but there are statistical differences between the consensually non-monogamous group and the monogamous group when it comes to things like trust and jealousy. They just go in the other direction from what I think most people assume. That is, the consensually non-monogamous people are a little bit more trusting and a little bit less jealous 
than the monogamous group. And so for me, I mean, I'm happy just like look at all that collectively and say, eh, let's call it a wash. <laughs> that is, that is like these people weren't randomly yeah. assigned. I mean, there's a lot of critiques you can offer of this work, but if you right. look at people who opt in to a monogamy norm and people who opt in to a consensual monogam non-monogamy norm, they are essentially equally happy, which suggests to me that it is an option that should be available to people and the cultural stigma surrounding it is probably doing more damage than good. And that it's a conversation that a whole lot of couples probably would benefit from having that they're not allowed to have. Mm. I don't think of it from a moral standpoint in the sense that there's a black and white, right and wrong. As I get older, the, the line between morality and practicality are very, very fuzzy, right? Is eating pork wrong because it displeases God or is eating pork wrong because it gives you the runs, right? I mean, like there's – morality comes from some very practical – accepted morality comes from some very practical places. In regard to this issue, as I said a little earlier – I just don't think I could pull it off. Yes. I mean, it's, so there even is, if my wife was down with that. Right, so to speak. There is research on this, and there are individual differences on like who tends to be into this, who tends to feel more satisfied, less satisfied in terms of opening up their, their marriage. And there is no doubt at all that there are meaningful differences in terms of who would benefit from a monogamous versus a non-monogamous sort of thing. Again, nobody's advocating for, for cheating or infidelity. So it's just, are we going to have an overtly monogamous norm or an overtly non-monogamous norm? My guess is that you represent what will end up being when the data come in more than half of people. That is that yours will be the majority sort of thing that like, you know what, seems kind of fun, but really just not worth it. There would be right. too much jealousy. Yep. The logistics would be too complicated. I like, wouldn't want to deal. And there would be a substantial minority who I think would benefit from exploring it. Kids, clean up. Your mom's boyfriend's coming over. <laughs> so, okay, to less sexy topic. You joke, but but there's lots of... That, look, I know. Look, I've, hold, I've hold heard. Hold, 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 hold. You're living in a... I, that comment, I think, is the first one in our conversation that makes me think that you're living in a, in a sort of narrow cultural frame. We talked earlier about like the nuclear family and marriage, and I'm like a fan. Like I think yeah. it's great. But to act as if humans have only ever like been like mom dad and 2.3 right. children is absurd like this is weird what we do now and it's usually multi-generational lots of cultures have had multiple wives some of them have had multiple husbands and for people who for religious reasons object i mean don't read the bible because there's a fair <laughs> bit of like non-monogamy among our among our patron right. saints some hot torture porn in there as well. <laughs> yeah. So how do people who have less money have more challenges in marriage? You know, I think there's two exciting things happening in terms of the sort of social psychology, the research on money and marriage. One of them is, is the one you raised, which is it's weird how strongly, or at least wild, how strongly social class is linked to relationship well-being. So, so for example, remember I mentioned earlier that like, since 1980, divorce rates have come down, and I said particularly for college-educated people. So really what I mean is like higher socioeconomic status because college correlates extremely strongly with, you know, with income and job prestige and so forth. And actually, divorce rates have continued to go up among people without a high school degree. They've basically remained flat among people with a high school degree but no college degree over the last like 40, 50 years. But they've come down a lot among people who have a, a college degree. And the truth is we don't totally know why this is. Except I think a healthy dose of it is it's pretty hard to be poor. That is, it is a right. stressful 
thing to be poor, the things that you and I can do, like, you know, lots of people talk about, well, just go on date nights. And granted, you can do Take a vacation, rope, get yeah. a hotel yeah. tonight. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't After my third job, I'll go spend yeah. 700 bucks at the St. Regis. That's exactly, yeah, that stuff. But but even things like who watches the kids? I mean, I, these things are pretty complicated to do if you're poor. And also, even if you get time for the two of you, despite the fact that, like, you work the shift from 4 to 12 and your partner works the shift from, like, you know, the graveyard shift or whatever – even if you're able to get some of the time, a lot of the stuff you need to talk about, like the most urgent stuff, is much more pressing and unpleasant, right? This probably is not sipping Pinot and talking about the, the play you just watched. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing that I think is exciting, this is a new paper that we have coming out it, where we randomly assigned people to have joint versus separate bank accounts. So all of these people, when they entered the study, they were all engaged. None of them were married. They were all engaged to be married. All of them had separate accounts, totally separate accounts at the time we got them. And all of them expressed openness to like, they hadn't figured out yet how they were going to manage their finances. And they said, sure, we're okay with you randomly assigning us to do that. And so we did. We randomly assigned them to one of three conditions. You guys either stay totally separate for the first two years of your marriage. We only studied them for the first two years or join everything for the first two years of your marriage. Or like we didn't give them instructions, right? And what we find is that is that those people who were randomly assigned to merge their finances, ended up having a more satisfying newlywed period than people who were assigned to keep their separate accounts or that we didn't give them instructions. And I think this is one of these ideas that's like, this is sort of about interdependence. This is the idea that's like, it's us. We are a Mm. unit and it's ours. And money is so relevant so often that the fact that it's not my money and your money anymore, it's our money, seems to have, again, it's only one study, but it is intriguing, seems to um, have a causal effect on relationship quality over the next couple of years, which is pretty cool. Where do you think couples get tripped up around money? One of them is, we have a different paper on this. One of them is just that people have different spending habits. So we often think about, we often think overspending as a self-control problem that like, if only people had enough self-control that they wouldn't overspend. But it it turns out that you can have a self-control problem either way. So just like anorexia nervosa is a little bit of like a self-control failure, even though it's over-control, some of us have, uh, you know, unkindly, we use the term tightwads to talk about them, but some of us have a hard time spending. We actually underspend and we're basically, right? And so if if spend thrifts and tightwads get together in a marriage, they do tend to fight about that. They It is painful for the, the tightwad to spend. It is painful for the spendthrift not to spend. And so that's just an additional source of stress in the relationship. One of the great things is like having plenty. We're back to social class again, right? And mm-hmm. and so some of the things that you can use money, not only you can fight about money for sure, but you can also use money not to fight. So for example, hiring somebody to clean the house is something available to hire social class people, but not so much the lower social class people. And it is the sort of thing that just prevents fights. So people can use their money effectively to avoid conflict. Well, there's a lot of thought-provoking stuff in the book. It's called The All or Nothing Marriage. I want to thank the author, Eli Finkel, for joining me today. Eli, where can we find out more about your work? Yeah, my website will have it, uh, elifinkel.com, or drop by your bookstore. Order the book on Amazon. I hope you like it. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, man. Pleasure. My sincere thanks to Eli Finkel of Northwestern University and the Kellogg School of Management, where I visited as a potential student, but I did not apply, which in no way should reflect poorly on Kellogg. They're doing fine without me. They're doing fine. And I did okay without them. It's a cool place. If I could live in a lot of lifetimes, Northwestern would be a a fun place to spend a little time. All right, takeaways. Man, 
There's a lot of ways to do marriage, aren't there? But I think that some of the main themes here were that you got to be invested in it. You got to be present for yourself and for your spouse. You got to be realistic. You got to let the hard times come and the hard times go and not let go and got to encourage your partner to grow and hope that you guys don't grow apart. I think people that say they grow apart aren't really growing. One person's growing and the other person isn't growing or neither of them is growing. They're not invested in the marriage. They're not invested in each other. And I say this with the full realization that I'm not done being married and I'm not a perfect spouse. So I'm just conscious of it and I'm trying to be present, continue to grow in healthy ways and continue to encourage Stacy to grow in healthy ways. And so, and it's not always easy. It's not always easy. The ways in which she wants to grow aren't always the things that I think would be best for, for our marriage or for me necessarily, but it is in my enlightened self-interest to help her become the best person she can be. And so I will consciously continue to try to do that. Don't think the non-monogamy is going to happen in our house. Sorry, ladies of the greater Atlanta area. I know you're horribly disappointed. Not as disappointed as you would be if we actually ever hooked up. But in this case, you know, contain your grief, girls. It'll be okay. I hope you enjoyed the comedy clip that we put in there. That's a relatively new one. I don't believe it's unromantic to say that you have to have appropriate expectations about marriage. And I think that's why that bit is funny. We got a lot of marriage stuff coming up. As I said in the introduction, there's uh, just for whatever reason, you know, when you're eating a, like you're eating a pint of ice cream or a half gallon <laughs> and you hit like that vein of uh, fudge ripple and you just start digging down that vein and start digging out all the fudge ripple. Well, we hit a, a thematic vein of fudge ripple recently and we've got a lot of very interesting guests in the space of marriage and divorce and almost divorces that we're going to talk to over the next few weeks. Uh, I have already interviewed a woman who provides consulting services for ultra high net worth women going through divorce. And I learned of her a ways back and I was like, oh, that's a thing. That's something I think I'd like to learn more about on the podcast. And then I was reviewing her work and she brought up the topic of private investigators. And I was like, private investigators? I want to talk to a private investigator. So I got an interview coming up with a private investigator who looks into financial malfeasance and people who hide money, cryptocurrency uh, forensics and stuff like that. Super interesting. And next week I am talking to Harrison Scott Key, who is the author of a book called How to Stay Married. And it's it's the memoir of how he and his wife went through infidelity and then went through infidelity again and they almost got divorced and then they almost got divorced and uh didn't happen it's a bizarre story and i don't want to be culturally narrow is what i think eli referred me to but i had some judgments i was experiencing judgments while reading this book and it'll be interesting to be forthright about those judgments in the interview with harrison and by the way him calling me culturally narrow which i totally accept I embrace it. I'm not the most open-minded guy in the world, and that's okay. But it reminded me of when I was sitting in the in the Princeton University office of Peter Singer, whom the New Yorker referred to as the world's most influential living philosopher, and we were talking about giving money to poor people, and I asked him what my reward was, and he goes, well, that's kind of primitive, isn't it? And I'm like, well, I'm a kind of a primitive guy. Anyway, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying And I hope you are too. I know you are too, because if you weren't, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast and you wouldn't have made it all the way through to the end, which I appreciate you doing. 
Hope you're having a great summer. We'll be back very soon with more episodes. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.